2001, A Space Policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, help. What you got there? Oh, I was actually listening to some of the stuff. Yeah, really? dude. I yeah. love this book. Yeah, 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 this yeah. This is Tales from Jabba's Palace, edited by Kevin J. Anderson. In the epic Tales of Expanded Universe series. And this came out, I believe, in the early 90s. Yeah, this correct? one's, what, 90? I'm going to guess 95. What and is it? 95. 95. Okay, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there's also a Timothy Zahn uh, short story in there, specifically about Mara Jade, who ends up eventually becoming Luke's wife and Jedi partner. But at the time, was just there for a drink. <coughs> Sleight of hand, The Tale of Mara Jade, page 120. There it is. I hadn't read that one. I, I tend to ping pong around Oh, those books. are great for ping ponging, for so, sure. So check out, speaking of Weakways, The Great God Quay. Yeah. The Tale yes. of Barada and yes. the Weakways. Wonderful. Did you read this I one? haven't yet. It's, it's on. I'm about to. I want you to uh, read starting here. At this morning? Mm -hmm. This morning, Barada's only concern was finding six rocker panel cotton pins for the AE-35 unit that helped keep the sail barge aloft. Ah! Java's sail barge <laughs> is run with an AE-35 unit. Well, no wonder he has issues. <laughs> <laughs> this is probably what caused him to crash into that dune and explode exactly. into a million pieces. <laughs> uh, I just don't even know. 3PO, we've got a failure in the AE-35 unit. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, man. That's pretty wild, isn't it? So somebody was a 2001 fan yes. for sure. Snuck that in there. The story's by... George Alec Effinger. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. He, he sounds like a man that was born in the, the time. Yes. Especially those big three name hitters. Yeah. And those um, pseudoplumes and nomdenims, mm -hmm. as you call them. Boy, we have been pouring over this stuff and just going into various wormholes, just like Dave, when we come <laughs> to the cross section between these two films, because... It's not just about how 2001 influenced Star Wars. It's about the cross-pollination of the creative yeah. talent there and the influences. It's a two-way thing, though, because you got Star Wars influencing Kubrick, too, later on. So. Yeah, yeah. So you've got real synergistic power between the two, and they just elevate each other and complement totally. in such a great way. It celebrated the beauty of space travel and the beauty of design and the beauty of motion. The whole idea of that movie is that space and space travel is exquisite. It's like watching a sunset. The whole movie is like watching a sunset. All the shots are very long and very slow and very musical and very, you know, you get to see everything. Both of these films use a different delivery system for the narrative. And I think for the emotional parts of these films where it's not a direct dialogue interaction with the characters. It's it's not any kind of narrative exposition that you get over top to let you know what you should be feeling. You get these swelling orchestral pieces that guide your heart into the palms of the producers and directors' hands. I mean, it really, really takes you and whisks you away because You've got these scenes in 2001 where uh, normally you would probably get a little bit of a, a blend of Muzak or techno babble sci-fi brown noise. And instead, you get this incredible looming waltz. 
Then that first moment where we see the space station beautifully outlined against the inky you know, blackness of infinite space, you hear the music of the Blue Danube and you re recreate in your mind everything most beautiful, everything most elegant, everything most precious about the entire history of art and manners, courtliness, ritual, everything is rehearsed in that in your mind. I know we've talked about this at length, but it's such a great parallel to the sequence of orbital mechanics and the the ballet and the dance of uh, docking the ships together. And then uh, to counterpoint that in Star Wars, in the very first few scenes of the original Star Wars or New Hope, you get a lot of scenes with robots that actually express any type of emotion. Um, Anthony Daniels really, you know, tearing up the scenes. I've just about had enough of you. Go that way. You'll be malfunctioning within a day, you nearsighted scrap pile. And don't let me catch you following me, begging for help, because you won't get it. The score that John Williams provides on it kind of lets you know, oh, they're in like a mysterious area. It's it's a part of the film. It, it really kind of paints the background of a place that you haven't been before. This is you need some kind of context to let you know, like, should I be worried? Is this a normal thing? But no, you you are absolutely uh, chaperoned by this wonderful <laughs> gentleman at, at the podium. So yeah, a big hats off to John Williams and a big hats off to the many big music influences that Kubrick used in, in his film as well, because they give you so much more emotional information to guide you on the plot. It was a big risk to go with an orchestral score for Star Wars in the first place because it had been out of style for a long time. Yeah. And people were playing that disco music. That's right. in 1968 too because everybody was kind of scratching their heads anyone who wasn't in the editing room with the team during dailies when they figured out that this is really awesome but anyone else is like watching from the sidelines oh yeah we've figured out the score oh yeah you're gonna use alex north who made that great soundtrack from spartacus nope well actually we guess but then we're, we're gonna decide not to use it and we're gonna use these temp tracks yeah. instead what like greatest hits of classical music what is what because everything else in the movie is so futuristic mm -hmm. and he talked to pink floyd at one point that we, we are going to do a, a orchestral score but alex north is very modernist very 20th century a lot of dissonance a lot of atonal stuff as you can hear in the recorded score that's available but there you have a smash soundtrack seller i mean the best-selling soundtrack probably as up to that time was 2001 because it was a great compilation of great recordings of classical pieces yes. but it also each one of them was so tied into the visuals that it evoked the movie from home which is the point of buying soundtracks especially before home video and what was the next it was 2001 it was star wars then the greatest selling not only greatest selling soundtrack album, but the greatest selling classical album, yeah. I think, at the time. Yeah, every time I hear Blue Danube now, I can't help can't it. not. <laughs> yeah. That scene just plays in my head. I mean, it, it's just tied into the DNA. It of is. It. And so then you have Lucas cutting the film with tent music like everybody does. And, and there's a great series on the soundtrack show by David W. Collins. Listen to that podcast. It's a great show. And he has a great series on all the Star Wars movies, but particularly for A New Hope. One, there's several episodes just on the influences on the score. And some of those influences being the temp tracks, because Lucas 
was thinking about just releasing the movie with those classical music tracks and the temp score, just like 2001. Wow. And John Williams came in, he was convinced then to do a score and show John Williams these tracks. And, and he went by the temp tracks and kind of created the same mood. And a lot of times very similar to the tracks, classical tracks that were selected. It's one of those situations where I just couldn't imagine the film with a different soundtrack. No. There are several, several films that I've seen recently that I, who, who cares? Yeah. Like really, like it, it has not been yeah. uh, ins- inspirational or, or kind of like an earworm mm-hmm. that just won't let go. But yeah, for some of the, especially in the original Star Wars, I mean, the Imperial theme, the first time you hear it. Oh, in Empire, yeah. Uh, oh, the, uh, oh, in Star Wars, the, the Imperial theme. I'm the, sorry, the, yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, my yes. goodness gracious, bring the house down. There's no <laughs> no lyrics in these songs. Yeah. And not, they, they were so original that it really became... Uh, well, the Force theme is a prime example of that. game at home watch the binary sunset and drop in the track on your home video editing software of the binary sunset alternate track wow. it's probably out on youtube it's somewhere at least because it's in the the complete score recordings and you can hear the alternate version completely different piece of music for the binary sunset now there were other places i'm sure that the force theme would continue to be used yeah. but to have it associated with the force and with luke and jediism Oof. and looking beyond into the future and all the things that that binary sunset evokes it's It's all in the music and with that other piece of music picture yeah huh i guess he's thinking about things very wow. emotional very dramatic but no it's it not evoke that it same does not kind take of emotion. you there yeah mm-hmm. rightly so it, it evokes an epic quality to have this symphonic music and epic in a way that really was truly <laughs> a hero's journey i was just searching for a story and then i thought mythology 
the idea that a society creates heroes that they can admire, I can see it as a, as a mechanism, a universal reality. So I said, I want to do one of those, only a modern version of that. Among his influences were the writings of scholar and educator Joseph Campbell, in which he explored the origins of myth and world religions. When Lucas was writing the script of Star Wars, he was heavily interested in Joseph Campbell. What Joseph Campbell was interested in was to see the connections between myths, the myths of different cultures, to try to find out what were the threads that tied all these very disparate cultures together. I did research to try to distill everything down into motifs that would be universal. I attribute most of the success to the psychological underpinnings, which have been around for thousands of years, and the people still react the same way to the stories as they always have. George is nothing if not a good reporter, and when he sets out to do his work, he starts reporting from the best sources he can gather. He brought Campbell into the process of looking at his work on Star Wars and saying, is, is this right? Am I getting it down? Is this the right emphasis? Is this the right character? Joseph Campbell said to me, the best student he ever had was George Lucas. It is very interesting to see the pacing of both of these films and, and how they are, uh, they're both futurism sci-fi, but they're both grounded in the old mythos of storytelling. You've got the Odyssean kind of classic archetype for 2001. And then the Joseph Campbell hero's journey for Luke and Star Wars, uh, the original trilogy. So not terribly different, really, when you break them down. You're looking at individuals that are going into unknown situations and not necessarily being prepared for the challenges that are coming at them. Does a movie like Star Wars fill some of that need for the spiritual adventure for the hero? Oh, it's perfect. It does the, the cycle perfectly. It's not simple morality play. It has to do with the powers of life and their inflection through the action of man. One of the wonderful things, I think, about uh, this uh, adventure into space is that the narrator, the uh, artist, the one thinking up the story, is in a field that is not covered by our own knowledges, you know? There was much of the adventure in the old stories is where they go into regions that no one's been in before. Well, we've now conquered the planet, so there are no empty spaces for the imagination to go forth and fight its own. Uh, war, you know, with uh, powers. And uh, that was the first thing I, I felt there. There's a, a whole new realm for the imagination to open out and live its forms. Do you, when you look at something like Star Wars, recognize some of the themes of the hero throughout mythology? Well, I think that George uh, Lucas was using standard mythological figures. The old man as the advisor, well, specifically, what he made me think of is the uh, Japanese sword master. Remember, a Jedi can feel the force flowing through him. I've known some of those people, and um, this man has a bit their, their character. Well, there's something mythological, too, isn't there, in the sense that the hero is helped by this stranger who shows up and gives him some instrument, a sword or a sheaf of yeah, light, shaft of light. He gives him not only a, a physical instrument, but a psychological commitment and a psychological center. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. Well, he had him exercising with that strange weapon and then pulled the mask over. That's real Japanese stuff. The duality of the journeys that these characters are going through and similar in a way that they leave their homes and go greatly into the unknown. I mean, the challenges that they both face in dire situations strengthen them and kind of heighten their characters to a level that is transformative. Mythologically, they've kind of like ascended a little bit. Luke learns that there's 
more to the world it, it becomes a much larger galaxy for him and uh oh my god <laughs> bowman like he gets to he faces mortality and he faces forced evolution and uh what's really great about both of them is how they return home and they they return home technically maybe in some light as the same individual but definitely not the same person there's a death and rebirth that goes on in both cases that is central to the mythological structure that Campbell identified. I and mean, this is the thing. Campbell identified these things. He didn't make them up. What, he, what Campbell was was a social anthropologist and, and mythologist who was able to prove his theory that all the stories that human beings have been telling each other have common themes no matter where we are in the world. Yeah, as far back as the Epic of Gilgamesh, even cutting through so many different international boundaries... There are so many different kind of flood stories, stories of brothers and siblings fighting and stories of the hero's journey. In this case, it's transformation because there can't really be a journey unless the character has some kind of change. We can't all identify with characters that go through a journey as big as an odyssey is that these two stories are. You can't go on that journey and not be affected. Yeah. And you can't come back the same, but you also can't come back without having accomplished something beyond experiencing it. You have to you have to make a resolution, you have to make a conscious decision at some point and not just be a passive participant in whatever the hell's going on. Right. You you know, you it's like, well, that was a wild ride. No, you have to make decisions at some point, and they're the hard ones. In the case of Luke, it's, you know, I have to kill my father, and then later, more importantly, I cannot kill my father. I will not kill my father. Right. In Bowman's case, it was, I have to kill my mentor and my lifeline. And the death of the father and the death of the mentor are both major points in the framework transformation yeah of the absolutely it's the catalyst for their growth mm -hmm. and it is symbolic in a way that they're leaving something behind but also gaining something luke of course leaves finally because he has to i mean there's usually a, a refusal to the call before the character finally the hero takes up the mantle when they do they find that they are forced out of circumstances to do this they wouldn't have chosen it otherwise luke would have stayed on the farm yes he was mad about it and he wanted to go complain at tashi station but he was comfortable with that and it yeah. was kind of like his subconscious was maybe relieved that he had an excuse not to go off and maybe fail and maybe not be the best hotshot pilot Sure. Also, the, the, the feeling of familiar responsibility versus living your own life, that's something that a lot of us have dealt with on a personal level. It's totally different with Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru because, you know, that's his, that's the only family he's really Absolutely. known his whole life. And like you said, even though he is just like looking for any opportunity to, to get off of tattooing, but I'm pretty sure he would have stayed for another season mm -hmm. and he would have. You would have way done what he, yeah, yeah, be a good son, basically, a yeah. good nephew. Yeah. Well, what happens? Circumstances force him to because they're killed. What else has he got left? So he has to go with Ben. Now, in the case of Bowman, you know there were issues with Hal, but we're going to ride this out and we're going to see what happens. Well, no, you're forced into a corner now. You're the only survivor. It's yeah. you versus him. And so you have to make that decision. You're forced into it. Especially when he's isolated in the pod. I mean, he could have chosen at that point whether the situation was too dire and he wanted to give up mm -hmm. or whether he was going to usurp the power of the discovery and yeah. take care of his, uh, at that point, his, his enemy. That meant leaving the Discovery because he couldn't control it on his own. The ship was designed and built to be controlled by computers. So he was forced to leave in the escape pod. Well, C-3PO and R2-D2 
There goes another one. Hold your fire. There's no life forms. They must have short-circuited. That's funny. The damage doesn't look as bad from out here. Are you sure this thing is safe? Oh. <laughs> also sealed into an escape pod. <laughs> Forced into an escape pod. Thankfully, they actually had a, a destination of solid ground to go to. Mm-hmm. But you could argue that a similar point for Luke would, would be hanging upside down over Bespin from the bottom of Cloud City. Yeah. You know, it. It's hard not to let go. I mean, it's it's very, very, very difficult to hang on. that he was clinging on for dear life and and didn't let go after hearing the awful news of who his father was and the the fact that he was going to be tormented and tempted by the and pursue for the rest of his life by this person he hated who now you know it's a lot more complicated that was a moment to give up when hope was lost they both go through a, a death at that point but you've been looking up some wild stuff too you were seeing some imagery that was pretty wild too, right? Like computer displays that match between the two movies and stuff. Some shots also that look similar. Yeah, it's certainly, um, you know, the the displays that we see in you know through station and habitat and shuttle and all the different shots from two thousand one. Um, if you look at something like the X wing cockpits, the and Empire Strikes Back, like the the war room on Hoth with all of the uh, trajectory grids and tracking of the incoming imperial ships those all had a very similar aesthetic even color schemes you know that could just been a, a product of its time but having those like really solid color like green grids with the red kind of tracking dots and everything's very high contrast almost like submarine kind of feel you, you imagine for them to be able to see in easy low light without mm. hurting their eyes that kind of thing so that could have been a natural coincidence but i feel like the inspiration is certainly there from 2001 to those. You wonder how much it's being used as reference as well. Like I want that or some that style. Specifically, yeah. Because the docking bays, I mean, that is the docking bay. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, and you can tell from the like the from 2001. We we don't know what this was like to watch 2001. Not only with no great sci-fi, but just without Star Wars as a context. So. When we watch 2001, it's like, oh, wow, when they when they dock onto Space Station 5, it's like the Death Star hangar. That's amazing. It's just like how they did it. But we don't, but we just assume, okay, so there's a force field. And then the energy thing opens up and then shoop, it closes after them. And then you don't get sucked out into space when you get out of the ship. But we don't know that. We just assume that that's the way it is because that's how it was in Star Wars. Yeah. It could just be landing lights. Like, here you go, guys. Don't run into the, you know, <laughs> don't bank it like the last 18-wheeler drive. It's a supermarket air curtain that just blows the dust off of you, but it doesn't keep you from the <laughs> yeah. deathly vacuum of space. It's a mister. <laughs> and it mists off all that. Um, the, Proto-gunk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, the, the, isn't there fungus floating around in space, like microbes and stuff, possibly? Well, um, it certainly gets kind of funged up up on the ISS. Uh, mm. Lots of yeah. air purification that has to take place there. And yeah, you don't want you bringing that onto your station. You know, wash Oof. that off before you come into the house. Yeah, boys. pool rules. Pool yeah. rules, everybody. Exactly. But whether it's an energy field or not, we see it visually as this, pretty much the exact same image. You could say the same with those computer displays like how many computer displays do you think they had on polaroids looking back is like okay this is the the process of do 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 one two three four five mm-hmm. dan o'bannon dan o'bannon was one of the guys working on those computers the guy who wrote alien <laughs> he was designing computer display shots for star wars and you have to think because it is such a big influence 2001 such a big influence on dan o'bannon that he was looking at that directly. that's interesting too because the nostromo is also a 
could fit in this this wheel of real looking but also fantastic sci-fi ships. Mm-hmm. It, it also has the it's worn out. I yeah, mean, it looks like it has been through hell and back. Yes. <laughs> at this point, it's super grungy and beat up, and that whole kind of you know lived-in ship yeah. aesthetic reads really true through there. So that the Discovery and the Falcon and the Nostromo, you know, absolutely you, you sit there and and pick and because it's drawn all of those designed by industrial designers. Well, the Falcon was, Joe Johnston was an industrial designer, but they used industrial but close, design. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And Ron Cobb, who designed on Alien and Star Wars, certainly did. So the functionality thing, like you were talking about last week with the tech that makes it work. Yeah. You can, you don't, Doug Chang, wasn't Doug Chang's panel on Celebration oh, the, it was one so of the best great. parts? Yeah. Talking about how you have to see. Exactly. And you don't even really have to know what it is, but you know it has like a functionality and you could almost make up in your mind, you know, when you see these little clusters of boxes together, you're probably like, oh, that's maybe some kind of storage or you'll see different parts of the ship that will read as either lasers or something that may read as like an antenna or, or like a radar or some kind of real life, either aircraft or vehicle. But it feels natural like it it doesn't work on magic you you can you can tell every rivet and piston and hydraulic line has some sort of purpose i spent seven years working with george lucas to understand his universe (laughs) thank you his foundations still guide me today and i try my best to be a good steward of his philosophies The Star Wars universe has a distinct internal logic that only makes sense for Star Wars. George established just what he needed for his storytelling, and it's not always logical or scientific. In film, it says that it takes the audience a minimum of eight frames to grasp what they're looking at. That's a third of a second. Then it takes another three seconds to understand what it is before the film cuts the next shot. So we design for the silhouette. The silhouette is how I evaluate whether a design is successful or not. Color and detail complete the design, but don't define it. And that's a really important concept. The designs, therefore, need to be easily understood. And the key is to keep it simple. Design as if a child could draw it. Joe Johnston excelled at this. You immediately understand what the X-Wing is. The designs also need personality. They need to be believable. They need history to look real. They need to have an internal logic that makes sense. These principles apply to environments and sets as well. And there's nothing special about these principles. Other film designers have been using them in designing other films and other franchises. But Star Wars has a distinct style because of the choices that we make. Perhaps the most direct legacy crossover that's still going stronger than anything in Star Wars to this day, straight from 2001, is the droids themselves. I am C-3PO, human cyborg relations. Sir, I am fluent in six million forms of communication. This signal is not used by the Alliance. It could be an Imperial code. Let me put it this way, Mr. Raymer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. The robot godfather is certainly how without even considering the eye find me a droid other than a gonk or maybe a mouse droid that doesn't have eyes which humanizes gives it a face right but also the the one eye of how the one eye of r2d2 the one eye of our cute lola who has another little eye but you know from obi-wan and then cyclopean mm -hmm. there's so many of those right and it's a glowing eye on those droids, right? Whether it's astromechs or whatever. Usually, yeah, it usually has some kind or of... Or can glow. Maybe it doesn't always glow, like but an LED. can. And also, the droids and basically most of the planets... Well, I mean, okay, so Hal, we know that he is treated as an equal, if not just like a... They, they don't treat him like a robot, like a machine. Right. They do treat him like a like a co-worker in a way that you know they're they've humanized him mm-hmm. he, he's not just a piece of machinery 
And I think that is also seen over and over again with the droids of Star Wars, where they have such deep personalities that even though they may not like hearing C-3PO rambling on and on about the odds of their death, <laughs> they're not just going to like, well, okay, never mind. I was going to say. Turn him off. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> I saw him. I saw him. Saw what? Star Destroyer sure, coming right at us. Sir, sir. Turn him off or shut him down. I really don't see how that is going to help. Surrender is a perfectly acceptable alternative in extreme circumstances. The Empire may be gracious enough. There, there have been some droid atrocities and uh, and certainly some droid rights issues kind of portrayed throughout the series. But yeah, well, at least he didn't blast him. Right. <laughs> or airlock him. You know, that could have been. Well, if we do take into account Solo and the L337. Yeah, leading the... Uh, the droid, droid revolution <laughs> there. What is it? What ends up happening? Right, her memory systems feed up into the computer, upload into the ship. She becomes basically the HAL of the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, that's how it's able to chart those hyperlanes so quickly. Yeah, it's, they've got a really high-end artificial intelligence running the flight stick. Excuse me, I need to use this terminal. Hello? Can you hear me? Oh. Restraining bolts. Barbaric. Congratulations, you're liberated. Scoot. I don't know. Free your brothers and sisters or something. Just give me some space. Hey, we don't serve their kind here. What? You're droids. They'll have to wait outside. We don't want them here. They're much way out by the speeder. We don't want any trouble. I heartily agree with you, sir. I wonder, too, like, when it came time to work on AI, I mean, how do you go back to sci-fi and meanwhile, you know, this big nuclear bomb happened in the genre you left, but how do you not do that? And they right. didn't. I mean, he succeeded or in his designs, Spielberg succeeded with AI to not be Star Wars. I but. think because in AI and probably also in Star Wars, you could very easily replace the droids with so-and-so group of people. Mm -hmm. It feels very much like the destruction of the native population in America or the genocides that happen in you know, Sudan and Africa and war crimes of Japan and China. It feels like if we had droids today in our society, these kind of things would happen to them. They would be grouped and either persecuted and vilified or at least segregated in some way that would lessen their equality with the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and children of all ages, what will they think of next? See here, a bitty box, a tinker toy. A living dog. Of course, we all know why they made him. To steal your hearts. To replace your children. This is the latest iteration in a series of insults to human dignity. And in the grand scheme to phase out all of God's little children. Meet the next generation of child designed to do just that. Any kind of revolt is a survival Right instinct. Poor Hal was all alone. He didn't have anyone to commiserate with. with. Yeah. <laughs> the precursor story to the Matrix film that's portrayed in a lot of different medium essentially shows how artificial intelligence was used to be like a subservient kind of tailored machine to the human needs and depravities. Oh, yeah. And it got to a point where one of the robots finally kind of loses it and murders its owner and it's the first robot murder trial there we go and wow after this happens they sanction the destruction of his entire class of mm. you know, robot servant so um, when the other ro robots see what's happening you know they're able to intake the information about the trial and they see in the streets their compatriots being destroyed and thrown into like a scrap heap so 
eventually they all end up leaving and making their own society of just robots. <sighs> they become like the fastest growing gross capital or um, yeah, GDP country in the world like, wow. very quickly. And then they basically end up destroying the human economy and eventually enslaving their meat bags. Was, was that story by the Wachowskis like a backstory they gave somebody who did novelize? I believe so. I think that was part they of it. They were watching the droids cartoon, right? <laughs> yeah, the That's great, the, the great, great heat. scrap heap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is the Matrix actually just a droids cartoon episode? Could be. We need to go back and watch all. Well, maybe we shouldn't commit that. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't care, but it's a dangerous affair. I'm in trouble again. 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 Trouble I didn't mean to, but I had to do it because of Count Dooku. <laughs> and that's what Christopher Lloyd's been doing on Jack Black Lizzo Planet, you know, with yeah. those droids. Program them to, to go insane, and then the rest of the droids are facing the consequences and do have to form an uprising to stop this from happening. So that's a, an interesting plot point that keeps rearing its ugly yeah. head, it seems like. It's certainly rearing its ugly head in the news every day right now. Wow, well, that's... Yeah, it... Hits very close to home. By 2009, your your laptop will have the same memory as a human being. And by 2019, your laptop will have the same memory as all human beings. So the question is, at what point do these machines start become sentient? And at what point will it be immoral to unplug a computer. I honestly think you ought to sit down calmly, take a stress pill and think things over. Richard Edlund maybe is the biggest example of, of crossover from the late period because, you know, here he is master at ILM doing all the, this great space work. No, we've got it. That's it. Next shot. Next yeah. shot. Jedi, for its time, it had 900 and some visual effects shots. It was the most complicated color visual effects movie even conceived of. Uh, he ends up leaving ILM after Return of the Jedi, after being on all three movies, to start his own company, Boss Films. So many independent production companies. That's really interesting. Yeah. First two jobs he gets is Ghostbusters in 2010. Dang. And he gets nominated for an Oscar for 2010. Wow. Just goes to show, you know, you have control over your uh, yeah. cuts and budget and everything like it really does change the quality of the film you're making well you were saying all these different artists that then go on and start their own companies right yeah the credits of visual effects supervisor richard edland include the star wars trilogy raiders of the lost ark poltergeist and ghostbusters 2010 is not going to necessarily look like 2001 in fact it won't look like 2001 uh, certain things we you know are in that were in 2001 such as the discovery will reappear and jupiter uh, it's going to look like you've never seen it before. The problem with the journey over to the Discovery was how to achieve convincing weightlessness. The backgrounds could be put in with blue screens. The problem was how to get the floating movements of the actors that the storyboard called for. For distant views, puppets would be used and intercut with their faces. But for these shots, the weightlessness had to happen in the studio. They brought in a wire-flying expert the man who'd developed the technique of speed flying for the Superman films. He'd worked on Return of the Jedi, The Alien, and Dark Crystal. He's an Englishman called Bob Harmon. In Hollywood, they made harnesses to his designs. 
something. It's all manual. We don't use anything mechanical at all. I mean, it's all wire rigs operated by men. I don't use like, motors or anything like that because um, you can't feel if anything's going wrong. Whereas on a, if you're doing it by hand, you can feel if something's jamming on you or you can feel if something doesn't feel right. With a motor, you don't. It just keeps pumping away and can do a, you know, a lot of damage. Not necessarily to the set, but to the artist. Of course, Stanley Kubrick didn't have anything to do with 2010, but Arthur C. Clarke did. He co-wrote the script as yep. well as the book and produced the movie along with Peter Himes. Peter Himes having come off of Outland with Sean Connery. Yeah, space shotguns. Yes. <laughs> it's high noon on Jupiter's moon. The second moon of Jupiter. Something deadly is happening. Pretty soon we'll see that this is just like every other mining town. I work these people hard and I, uh, I let them play hard. There's never much trouble. We're all professionals. Then you have Garrett Brown, who had been on The Shining, doing all the the inventor of the Steadicam, doing all the crazy Steadicam work in the hallways behind Danny on the tricycle and all that smooth ethereal photography. He then did the uh, speeder bike scene in Jedi. Oh, really? I got the idea of using a Steadicam. We did a test in a local park here of walking through the woods on a path that we kind of disguised. And he shot with a camera that shot one frame of film every second. So when you project it back 24 frames a second, it's going 24 times faster. And we figured he walked about five miles an hour, it came up to about 100 miles an hour, and it looked great. So he was walking around the redwoods shooting at like one frame a second gliding <laughs> along so that that is a smooth sequence and i think yeah. a, a lot of people's favorite also he worked he did temple of doom i saw him as i was watching temple of doom last night and i saw him in the credits and it's like i never noticed that before i didn't know he worked on this turns out he did the steady cam on the bridge sequence the swinging bridge okay which i was thinking about i was like well of course that makes you can't put a tripod out there it's a real swinging bridge you can't put a rig it's too heavy so if you put a handheld out there it's going to be you know shake tastic you need a steady cam wow. to smooth it out yeah yeah it's real scary you mean we can cross here steven was really was really scared of the bridge uh, because it was a real suspension bridge uh, over i guess it was 150 feet clear fall before you dashed yourself to death on rocks and shallow water. It's, it's very bouncy, Steve. Very bouncy. <laughs> Have you looked at Watto's junk shop lately? No. Let's look around out back here. Yeah, there we go. See the one uh, right there? Right, that one. Yeah. I'm a grand general. In luck, I'm the only one here about who has one. But uh, they might as well buy a new ship. It would be cheaper, I think, huh? <laughs> See what that's pointing oh, at? Oh, no. You, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> and it's just sitting right okay, there. Okay, so well, that, that basically means that Star Wars in 2001 canonically exists in the same universe. It does, yeah. So there, there's a pod. It's it's the EVA pod. Yeah. It's not like a version of it. That's the exact it's replica. The pod. Sitting upside down. Wow. Or belly up, rather, I suppose. But it's in plain view. Like, I never so, noticed. I mean, that was definitely Lockwood's pod, right? <laughs> <laughs> Lockwood's the one who's in, you know, at the cantina in Moss Eisley right now so, to this day. Yeah, here's here's what I'm thinking. Wormhole. Yeah. <laughs> Transferred out to the outer rim, smash into tattooing. Oh, so you mean so maybe like in film Frank is just <gasps> strangling, but instead he zips through a wormhole and yeah. then before he strangles to death, he's actually Yeah, yeah that's and perfect. So do you think uh Frank shucked the pot off on Watto or 
do you think this was oh yeah well, Ill, if, ill-gotten gains the maybe there <laughs> so the trajectory the their trajectory should have been about the same oh yeah i guess that's true his pod came after him yeah yeah hopefully it, it didn't try to like smash down on top of him yeah. when he hit the hit <laughs> <laughs> him in the, the plains of tunisia <laughs> you really think we're gonna find a pilot here that'll take us to alderaan uh, most of the best freighter pilots that will be found here only watch a step this place can be a little rough He's sitting up the bar. He's listening to some Biff jizz. Well, yeah, we'll leave we'll it not, at that. We'll not. <laughs> Isn't there, the, though, the guy? There's a spaceman in the cantina. There is. There's a guy in an astronaut suit. Just oh walking God. around in a regular spacesuit. How do we not how did we not put this together already? <laughs> wow. So that's Frank. That's Frank. He made it. <laughs> He's so confused. He's so confused. <laughs> he needs a drink. <laughs> the only thing that would make him more confused right now would be to actually see Dave. Yeah. In his current state. As a floating fetus. Oh my Lanta. <laughs> What in the world? Wow. <laughs> so, there's no question. And then he gets to see uh, Ponda Babu <laughs> get sliced by some kind of crazy space wizard. <laughs> oh, you know what, though? He's probably, you know, he's at risk of losing an arm because he takes his chest pretty seriously and he's not happy when he loses either. Oh, no. So, this could be a problem. <laughs> Uh, Rook to King One. I'm sorry, Frank. I think you missed it. Queen to Bishop Three. Bishop takes Queen. Knight takes Bishop. Mate. Uh. He made a fair move. Screaming about it can't help you. Uh, no, it's not wise to upset a Wookiee. But, sir, nobody worries about upsetting a droid. It's because a droid don't pull people's arms out of their sockets when they lose. Wookiees are known to do that. I see your point, sir. I suggest a new strategy, R2. Let the Wookiee win. Was it... Did they... Did we finally get to see it? Was it Black Chrysanthemum that ripped his <laughs> arms off? Yeah, it turns out pocket. the Trandoshans are like skinks. You yeah, just they rip grow arms off and they grow back. Exactly. Which makes it so tempting to just rip a Trandoshan's arm off for fun every time you see one. Kinda well, then they have grow back this little tiny Little arm. nubs. I wonder if they have a tiny lightsaber for their tiny arm. Right. <laughs> right, yeah, for that one Trandoshan Jedi. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's so cool. Like a um, toothpick saber. And from Clavia Space, I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Signing off. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.